on Textbooked. listening to Untextbooked. This is a history podcast for the future that gives young people like us agency and voice in our education. I'm your host, Gabe Hostin. I'm producer, Josiah Wilson. And heads up to all our teachers listening. This episode includes talks of guns and surviving assassination attempts. So to effectively include this episode in your lesson plans, you can find more resources on our website at untextbooked.com. All right, let's get into it. This week, we're learning about the Black Panther Party through the lens of one of its original members. I am Aaron Dixon, and I joined the uh, Black Panther Party when I was 19 years old. I was appointed captain of the first chapter outside of the state of California at 19. The Black Panthers first made national news just a year ago when they entered the state capitol in Sacramento armed with rifles and pistols. They were there, they said, to demonstrate opposition to the proposed legislation that would outlaw the carrying of loaded weapons. Generation after generation of black people in America have been born, they have worked, and they have seen the fruits of their labors and the life, liberty, and happiness of the children and grandchildren of the oppressor. The Black Panther Party was a political party for black power that formed in 1966. Aaron Dixon joined the Black Panthers in 1968. He became the captain of Seattle's chapter and organized in the chapter for 10 years. Aaron was 13 when he started fighting for civil rights. I was one of the first black students to volunteer to integrate the school district in Seattle. I asked him specifically what radicalized him into starting a chapter. Well, I got radicalized. Uh, It wasn't one single moment or one single thing. It was growing up in that time period of the 60s and living in segregation in Chicago and living in somewhat segregation in Seattle and being close to my grandparents in Chicago and hearing their stories of their great migration. During the Great Migration, six million Black Americans moved out of the South. This was one of the biggest migrations ever within the United States. People were fleeing the racism of the Jim Crow South and sought economic opportunity. Hearing my father's stories, uh, mostly when he joined the army and went to Mississippi and what him and his fellow black soldiers had to go to in Mississippi, which meant having to defend themselves before they had to go to war. And some of the things that happened to my father when he was in Okinawa. So those types of things radicalized me. Aaron has been involved with civil rights activism his whole life. He volunteered with SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. When he started college at the University of Washington, he helped create the school's first black student union. The assassination of several political leaders had a profound impact on his generation and his worldview. President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in 1963. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died. He wasn't a perfect person, but he was somebody that a lot of black people put a lot of hope into, you know, him and his brother, and they both were assassinated. 
Robert F. Kennedy, was killed in 1968. And then the assassination of Medgar Evers, a year later, I believe. In 1963, white supremacists killed civil rights leader Medgar Evers. And then the assassination of Malcolm X in 65. So all those things had a radical influence on me. But I think the one that really changed not just myself, but my whole generation was the assassination of Martin Luther King. Some very sad news for all of you. And I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight. In Martin Luther King 20 minutes ago died. And for me, it was personal because I, at 13 years old, I had actually marched with Martin Luther King and actually had met Martin Luther King and had actually talked with him. And I found myself wanting to protect him and asking him how come he didn't have a bodyguard because I had seen already so many assassinations. The news of King's assassination rattled the nation. Aaron heard the news while he was sitting in a jail cell for participating in a demonstration in the weeks before. There were a group of us that ended up in jail for a demonstration that we had done. And I remember when I went back to my bunk that night, I said to myself, I said my picket sign was going to be replaced by the gun. As the nation mourned the loss of Martin Luther King, People were out in the streets demonstrating, often violently and filled with rage. People made their voices heard across 125 cities in 29 states. The New York Times declared, Dr. King's murder is a national disaster. Two days after King's death, in the wake of protests in Oakland, California, another death rocked the nation, Bobby Hutton. Little Bobby Hutton was the first member to join the Black Panther Party and the first to die at the age of 14. And the reason why he died was because Martin Luther King had been killed because he had been out on the streets with some other Panthers. This was something that was not authorized by the leadership of the party, but Elder Sleever took it upon himself to round up some members of the party and go out and try to have retribution for the murder of uh, Martin Luther King. They ended up in a shootout, and that shootout culminated in the murder of little Bobby Hutton at 17 years old. Hutton surrendered unarmed when Oakland police shot him nearly 10 times. It's 11.15 in the morning outside the Ephesian Church of God in Christ, where the ceremony, the funeral of young Bobby Hutton, the young Black Panther slain by police a few days ago, is about to begin. Meanwhile, Aaron and his friends in the Black Student Union had the opportunity to be in Oakland for the funeral. We're hearing a little bit of sound from that funeral right now. This moment feels like a turning point. Into the family of Bobby James Hutton. The question is not will it be nonviolence versus violence, but whether a human being can practice his God-given right of self-defense. Shot down like a common animal, he died a warrior for black liberation. If the generation before him had not been afraid, he perhaps would be alive today. The old 
viewing him in the in the casket and going to that funeral and seeing all the Panthers that were there and then hearing Bobby Seale's speech later on that evening. Bobby Seale and Huey P. Newton co-founded the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California. They were a presence at the funeral. And when he finished with the speech, my brother and another comrade of mine, we approached Bobby Seale and we told him that we wanted to have a Black Panther Party in Seattle. So a week later, we had a big, big meeting with a lot of people that had been to be in the BSU and a lot of other young organizers. I was appointed captain of the Seattle chapter. It was a beginning for me. At the exact moment, I needed a little time to gather myself because I, I knew that my life was going to change in a serious manner. His life profoundly changed. Starting a chapter of the Black Panthers was unlike any of his other organizing work in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee or the Black Student Union at the University of Washington. He traded his college classes for Black Panther lessons in running a party chapter and political education. It was a lot more serious than anything I had, had experienced prior to that. As a matter of fact, when Bobby Still talked with us at our first meeting, we were told we had to have 2,000 rounds of ammunition and two weapons. The Black Panther leadership was older and more experienced organizers. Aaron learned directly from co-founders Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale. The leadership, being in their 20s and 30s, was more experienced in organizing. Aaron's new Seattle chapter, on the other hand, were college kids, mostly from the BSU. AKA the Black Students Union. Most of us who joined the party were between 15 to 19 years old. So it was important that we had that older leadership to kind of guide the party. And, and the party was very organized. So in the, in the beginning, we were wearing the uniforms of the Black Panther Party. And the national headquarters was in Oakland. And I made many trips to Oakland, Shattuck Boulevard. You were full time. You weren't part time. You know, you you gave up everything. When you joined the Black Panther Party, you gave up everything. I dropped out of school as many other Panthers did, and dedicated ourselves to, you know, working in the Black Panther Party. We had sections and section leaders, and we had captains, and we had lieutenants, and people were in charge of various things. Women were welcome to all ranks in the party, too. They, in many cases, ran the everyday aspects of the party. Women in the Black Panther Party, we didn't have roles for men and women. Everybody did the same thing. Women did security. They learned how to shoot, so we didn't have these roles, designated roles for women like some other organizations. And women were leaders in the Black Panther Party. Aaron learned about the vision the Black Panther leadership wanted to create. They had a vision. Huey had a vision. He was the chief philosopher of the Black, philosophical leader of the party. And, you know, we had to read two hours a day. We had to read the Red Book. We had uh, PE classes once a week. We had a newspaper that came out called the Black Panther Party Intercommunal News Service, which was actually the most important weapon that we had. And every party member had to go out and sell papers, 100 papers a day, because we were taught that power is the ability to define phenomena and make it act in a desired manner. And the newspaper allowed us to be able to define what was happening, not just in our communities, but what was happening around the world. As Aaron focused on growing the Seattle chapter, 
More and more chapters of the party emerged across 48 states in places like Chicago, New York, and Los Angeles. Different organizers and leaders all had their own individual goals. However, the main focus was on black liberation. Our main focus was to change the government, was to change the way the government operated. There were people in the party, particularly Eldridge Cleaver, who oftentimes spouted a lot of rhetoric regarding guerrilla warfare and things like that. But he was a very practical person, and as well as most of the people on the Central Committee, we knew that we were in no position to fight a guerrilla warfare like, say, Che Guevara did. There was no mountains and no hills we could run to and go form bands of guerrillas. So our struggle was in the community, organizing. And so we organized in other ways. We created coalitions with a lot of different groups. The first coalition was with the Peace and Freedom Party out of Southern California, which was a white organization. Then we created other coalitions with the Brown Berets in L.A. and AIM American Indian Movement and SDS and the Weather Underground. Fred Hampton created what was called the Rainbow Coalition, you know, with the Young Lords and the Young Patriot Party, which was a, a poor white organization made up of poor whites from the Appalachians. The Rainbow Coalition started in 1969 brought all of these groups with similar goals around ending racism and liberating economically marginalized people. And so this was what we were doing was organizing and creating a broader coalition because they were attacking us and they were killing us. And a lot of, you know, Panthers were dying. They were going to jail. They were going to prison. So we changed our tactics and came up what was called survival programs pending revolution. Survival programs pending revolution had a huge impact on the local community in Seattle. So we started developing these programs to help the community, to support the community so that they would support us. And so we started a free breakfast program. We opened up free medical clinics. We opened up 13 free medical clinics all across the country. You know, we started liberation schools. We started legal aid programs. We started busing the prison programs. And so this is where a lot of our efforts were going into these programs started in Seattle in 1970 and lasted longer than any other chapter's programs, continuing after the party disbanded. The Black Panther Party rocked the city status quo. The FBI then targeted and monitored the party. And in 1968, J. Edgar Hoover, Attorney General John Mitchell, and Richard Nixon decided that they should call a press conference that the Black Panther Party was the enemy number one. And so we didn't know that they said to themselves that they were going to have us wiped out. So by 1968, they started to implement the COINTEL program. COINTELPRO is short for Counterintelligence Program. This was a program designed with the express purpose of targeting political groups like the Black Panthers. A secret program we knew nothing about, which ended up uh, in the deaths of two very important leaders, Bunchy Carter, first in uh, Los Angeles, California, head of the Southern California chapter, and Fred Hampton in Chicago uh, almost a year later. Those were two of our most important leaders, but they also began to raid offices all across the country and arrest party members. People who felt that we needed to 
really engage in guerrilla warfare, you know, and that that's the party realized that was not that was suicide actually. But you know, we were an organization that believed in self-defense. We believed in protecting ourselves and defending ourselves with weapons. Officers would raid the Seattle chapter's party headquarters. And you know, when they came to raid our offices, we would defend ourselves with our weapons, as in the case was with the raid on the Southern California chapter right after the murder of Fred Hampton that ended up in a shootout that lasted for six to eight hours. Fred Hampton, Bunchy Carter, and John Huggins were all assassinated in 1969. Assassinations of political leaders had a profound effect on radicalizing Aaron. Now, his party leaders, his fellow city leaders, were being killed. As the heat of the 60s turned up, the threat came close to home. The summer of 1968, the Seattle Police Department put a $25,000 contract on my head, and I was set up for assassination, which failed. And then I had another assassination attempt in 1971. How did you find out about that, number one? And why do you believe that you were targeted? Well, the the FBI had decided there were three chapters that they wanted to destroy. That was L.A., that was Chicago, and then Seattle. Since I was head of the Seattle chapter, I became the number one target in Seattle. Mm -hmm. Just as Fred Hampton had in Chicago and Butchie Carter in L.A. In the summer of 68, there was a lot of firebombing. There was a lot of sniping. Seattle Time Magazine had a, a chart of the cities with the highest rate of sniping and the highest rate of firebombing. Seattle was number one in firebombing, number two in sniping. The police department in Seattle was getting frustrated because they couldn't stop these things that were happening. And so they felt that if they got rid of me, that they would be able to eliminate what was happening. And so they put a contract out on my head and I found out through my attorneys about this contract. They had tried to set me up for so-called stealing a typewriter. And so I had a lawyer, a very good lawyer, and the whole case hinged on a secret witness. But the secret witness never showed up. So I got off of that case. So I had become a target. Aaron was acquitted in this case and walked free. FBI informants infiltrated the entire Black Panther Party. We had informants in the party. You know, there were informants from the police department and there were FBI informants. So these informants had attempted to set me up and it didn't work out for them. I I barely escaped with my life. The second close encounter with death came close. The second time was in 1971 where some police, I got, we got our FBI files and we found out who it was. But there was an FBI informant who got hold of my shotgun shells because I had my shotgun shells in a bandolier and everybody knew that those are my shells Mm -hmm. to my shotgun. And they got hold of those shells and took the gunpowder off and put high explosives in. And so when I went out with another comrade to test fire the weapon, the shotgun blew up and it blew my arm off. I had fired it from my shoulder. I don't think I would be here today 
something told me not to fire from my shoulder, so I put it down and fired it lower, and then I blew my arm off. And we had the shotgun shells tested and found out that they had been tampered with. High explosives had been put in their place. So that was the second attempt um, on my life. That that is incredibly harrowing, and thank you for sharing that. I know you bring up both of those cases in your book, but thank you again for resharing it here. You also talk about in your book, you dedicate a whole section to COINTELPRO, which you briefly mentioned, which was a covert operation designed by the FBI to systematically destroy progressive movements, but specifically the Black Panther Party. And you dedicate a whole chapter to the assassination of Fred Hampton. Can you talk about a little bit about the day that Fred Hampton was assassinated and why he was such a valuable member to the party's organizing? Yeah, I had a chance to meet Fred Hampton in, in 68 when he first put the Chicago chapter together and we spoke on the same platform. And I, and I remember watching from the audience when he was speaking and I was just amazed at his speaking ability and how powerful he was. And when he spoke, you know, people just wanted to join the Black Panther Party. In the spirit of liberation, we understand that they want everybody in the party in jail. And we know that if we try to figure out and liberate and divide, and divide who should go, who should go and who shouldn't go, and who should go. We, spend more time we spend more time doing that than working for the people. So the quick solution, the speedy one, nobody go. Nobody go. We all stay right here. They wanted to join the movement. They wanted to be part of the movement because he was a tremendously charismatic person and he was extremely dedicated to improving the lives of black people, but all oppressed people. And so anybody who met Fred Hampton knew he was something, you know, very special. And, and I definitely felt that when I met him. So, um, when he was assassinated, I was at the um, office in Seattle. We had fortified our offices. Most of the, on the West Coast, the offices had to be really fortified. And we had field marshals who came to check to make sure our fortifications were up to standards. And so we had our office was heavily fortified. So that morning, Everybody here went out to the breakfast program because we had to get up at six in the morning to go prepare for the breakfast program. And, and I was the only one that was left at the uh, office. And I got the call from June Hilliard at national headquarters that Fred Hampton had been assassinated. I was devastated. You know, I was devastated. I was angry and I wanted to seek revenge, you know, and, um, and it was, it was a sad day. It was the saddest day in the 
time that I was in the Black Panther Party, for many of us, it was the saddest day when Fred Hampton was killed because we, anybody who knew him and, and understood him, we knew that he was destined to be a great leader in America because he could bring people together. He had the ability to bring people together from all races, all classes, all everything. At that point, he was he was gone. He would never be with us again. And the Chicago chapter never was the same after the death of Fred Hampton, just like the L.A. chapter was never the same after the death of Bunchy Carter and John Huggins. These assassinations must have had a profound impact on not only the party and how they operated, but America as a whole. I just wonder what it would be like if these or other revolutionary voices were still here. I agree. And it makes me even more appreciative that Aaron is so open to telling his story and that he's still with us to tell his story. After four years of being a captain in Seattle, he moved to Party National Headquarters in Oakland in 1972. He worked with co-founders Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale. He even served for a time as bodyguard to Elaine Brown, former Black Panther Party chairwoman. After the party disbanded in 1977, he continued to work as an organizer and activist in the community. In 2002, he founded a nonprofit that provides transitional housing for homeless young adults. In 2006, he ran for U.S. Senate under the Green Party. Since he has such a wide breadth of experience, I wanted to ask him what it meant to be a revolutionary. You dedicate your life to to change. You dedicate your life to making not just your community, but America and the world as a whole a better place. You know, a place where everybody has an opportunity to live at a standard that they should be able to live in. And also fighting against super predatory capitalism and imperialism. Right now we see that, you know, it, this in capitalism and Imperialism is destroying the world. The wars which come from the imperialists and the capitalists and the colonialization that happened throughout South America, throughout Africa and other places, which has led to the migrant crisis and, and, and which has led to global warming, you know, because of the insatiable appetite of the corporations and corporate heads, you know, um, you know, it's to the point where they will do anything for money, that they are some of the most greediest, evilest people on this planet. And it's, it's, it's leading to the destruction of the environment. And so that's what the Black Panther Party was fighting against. We knew what was coming, but we wanted to try to stop it. We wanted to try to unite people throughout the whole world. And that's why Huey and, uh, came up with the concept of intercommunalism, that all communities throughout the whole world, we are all the same. We should all unite against this common oppressor of the imperialists and the super predatory capitalists. So that's what it means to be a, a revolutionary. I can still consider myself to be a revolutionary. I still feel that we have to unite and we have to come together to try to save this planet and try to save the world because it seems that we are really headed very quickly towards destruction.
I cannot stress this enough. Thank you so much for being so open to this and coming on and recording this conversation with me. I really do appreciate it. Well, thank you. I appreciate your interest. And it's a story that has to be continuously be told. Thanks again to Mr. Aaron Dixon. His memoir is titled My People Are Rising, Memoir of a Black Panther Party Captain. So, Isaiah, tell me, how did this conversation with Aaron change how you think about activism? I would say it really showed me that not only can you do this dangerous work of fighting for change, but you can do it successfully and still live. And really the main reason why I wanted to choose this book was because there aren't a lot of examples of revolutionaries who fought for change, who warred leaders during this time who are still alive, who still hold those values and who still continue to fight for change. What do you think Aaron's legacy is? One of love and one of change. I see Aaron as someone who stopped at nothing to create change for his community and to fight against oppression wherever he saw it. And I think his story is a reminder that if you're in the position where you can fight back and you don't, you are complicit. And I see Aaron's legacy as a call to action and a reminder of what humanity looks like. Thanks for bringing us this amazing interview, Oziah. If you want to learn more about some of the topics covered in this episode, I have a few recommendations for you. Last season, we talked about the Black Panthers and gun ownership with Professor Adam Winkler. We also talked to Yale professor Beverly Gage about her Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of J. Edgar Hoover. He was the longtime director of the FBI and the person who labeled the Black Panthers enemy number one. Follow on Textbooks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. If you like the show, write us a review. We'd love to know what you think of Untextbook. Learn more at untextbook.com. Sign up for emails and become a member for added perks. Plus, every week we share a glossary of terms and other learning resources designed for teachers and students. Follow us on Instagram at Untextbook. That's all for this episode of Untextbook. I'm producer Oziah Wilson. And I'm Gabe Hostin. Thanks to the History Collab, Fernanda Rain and Cece Payne. Untextbook is produced by Pod People. Rachel King, Amy Machado, Danielle Roth, Hannah Pedersen, Michael Aquino, and Shay Woditz. Thank you.